Hey, um, our topic this morning is on suffering. Uh, so this is going to be a, a topical message, not an expository message, but we are going to be looking throughout the Bible um, on the topic of how could a good God allow suffering. Now, um, what I wanted to let you know is that um, there are some really great books on the topic of suffering. And so if uh, you are new to our church this morning, uh, if you're visiting with us and you are interested, I have a book here called If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain by John Dixon. What John Dixon does in this book is he takes four religious views on suffering. Well, he, takes the, uh, the, he gives an answer for the atheist, he gives an answer for the Muslim, he gives an answer for the Hindu, and he gives an answer for uh, the Christian. So, um, if I were God, I'd end all the pain. This is sort of helping us think through what the other answers are to or how other religions uh, conclude uh, about God and suffering. Uh, so afterwards, after the service, if you would like a copy of this and you're visiting with us, uh, this will be our gift to you. If you are a member of Sovereign Grace Church and you'd still like a copy of this, uh, Kurong sells it for $9.99. I'm going to sell it for $29.99 this morning. Special. No. <laughs> Let me, uh, this topic, as you would know, is quite a heavy topic. Uh, suffering is something that all of us have probably experienced or we know of someone that we dearly love that is actually walking through suffering at the moment. And so I clearly need God's help this morning. And so I would invite you to pray with me as we look to God and we look to his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come together as your people. And we thank you that you have provided us with not answers to everything, but with answers to who you are and what you're like and what you require of us. And so, Lord, this morning as we look at how you, who is good, could allow suffering, Lord, help our hearts. Help our hearts to be humble. Help our hearts to have ears to hear. Help our eyes to have eyes to see. And we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Guys, it was my uh, freshman year of high school. I lived in a place called Modesto, California, and uh, my mom and dad were firm believers in that you needed to work. You needed to have a work ethic. And so I had a paper out from a very young age, and it was my freshman year in high school and it was my last year of being a paper boy. So what that would require is I would have to get up at 4.45 in the morning and I would have to go out into our garage and then I'd have to open the garage door and go out onto the driveway and collect the papers that were bundled up and then I'd have to co collect the inserts or the ads if there were any and then I'd put them on a table that I had in the garage and I would stack the inserts and the papers and then I'd have to fold them together, put the rubber band around them and then put them in a bag and then I used to have to ride my bike or walk around the paper route that I had which is about 115 papers or homes that I delivered newspapers to. <clears throat> and one morning, in particular, my freshman year, there was an article on the front page that says, Father killed by drunk driver. My first instant thought as I reflect back on that was, man, that has got to be hard for that family right now. I can't imagine if my dad was killed by a drunk driver. But because of the task that was at hand, I had to continue folding the papers and, and um, bundling them up because they had to be delivered by 6 a.m. As I was um, folding the papers and thinking through, you know, um, that article, I thought, I've got to read this article. And as I read the article, it says, Mr. Glass, father of two, was killed by a drunk driver instantly after dropping some children home from a basketball game. My sister was one of the passengers in the car that Mr. Glass was dropping home after the basketball game. You see, Mr. Glass was the bus driver of the private Christian school that I went to. Mrs. Glass was the secretary of the private Christian school that I went to. 
and Chris and Paige Glass. Paige was a sophomore and Chris was a senior at the school that I went to, and it was a very small school. Mr. Class is dead? What? He's like the most likable person ever. And Mrs. Glass, she was like awesome. In fact, she would give you the, the passes uh, to class if you were late and, you know, always bend the rules for you just a little bit. You wanted to stay in her good books. She was beautiful. She was lovely. In fact, they were missionaries and they were home on furlough. They just spent years overseas telling people about Jesus. And Mr. Glass is dead? The guy who hit Mr. Glass, the drunk driver, of course, he walked away with a few injuries. How? Why? God, you say that that is good? That's what you think is good? You call yourself a good God? I don't get it. Why? Why him? And so this morning in our series, that question, if you're taking notes, is how could a good God allow suffering? If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Romans chapter 8, and I want to read a few verses. Now, as I said, this is not an expository uh, presentation, explanation of Romans 18, 8, 18, but I want to read a few verses for you. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider... This is Paul writing. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You're probably not surprised, friends, to know that the question of God allowing suffering is one of the biggest challenges for people when they are considering having a personal relationship with Jesus. How can God allow suffering? Why doesn't he end all of the suffering? Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, he provides an account in his chapter of how could a good God allow suffering, and it reads like this. It might come up on the screen, I'm not sure, but it says this, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, says Hillary, an English undergraduate. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Now, this isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. Can you relate to Hillary or Rob's thinking? Do you think God can't be trusted? Or God can't exist because of suffering? If that's you, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Thank you for coming, and I want to let you know that after the service, I will be available for questions, and the guy that was on the drums, he'll be available for questions as well. But in regards to suffering, (laughs) sorry to throw you under the bus, Jesse. We want to make ourselves available. We won't have all of the answers, but we do want to tell you and share with you who God is. I want you to know from the outset this morning that the answer to God allowing suffering is a mystery. It's a mystery to us, but it's not a mystery to Almighty God. 
Let me say that again. It remains a mystery to us, but it's not a mystery to Almighty God because He knows all things. You know, the best way for us to learn about God and who He is and what He does is to delve into His Word. And so this morning I have two points if you're taking notes. The first point is, what is the biblical perspective on God and suffering? What is the biblical perspective on God and suffering? And what is the biblical purpose of suffering is point two. So what is the biblical perspective? What does the Bible tell us? You know, when I remember attending Mr. Glass's funeral when I was a freshman in high school, I have this image stuck in my head of Mrs. Glass wearing black. But as grievers came into the door of her husband's funeral, she greeted everyone. She would warmly grab their hands. She would try to comfort them. She had a hope. She had a smile. Oh, there were tears. But a widow left with two teenage children is standing at the front doors of the church as mourners come to remember her husband. She showed concern as she spoke in the eulogy for the man who killed her husband. She spoke of forgiveness. It didn't make sense to me. But here's why it didn't make sense to me, and that is because Mrs. Glass had a very, very strong understanding of who God is. God is sovereign, and God is in control. What does the Bible tell us about suffering? What is God, the biblical perspective on God and suffering? The biblical perspective on God and suffering is, first of all, let's start with who God is. What does the Bible say about who God is? Not about the suffering first. Let's start with who God is. You see, the Bible tells us who God is. And when it comes to suffering, there's two things that I think we want to think about. And the first one is, is that God is sovereign. And the second thing we need to think about is what is God's character like? You see, we put God on trial. We want to shake our fists at God and say, who are you to do this this way? But what I want us to do is I want us to start with who God is. God is sovereign. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Get this, God being sovereign actually means that nothing, not a thing happens on earth or in heaven apart from the decree, the official will of Almighty God. Nothing happens. Nothing happens apart from the official decree of God's purposes and plans. It means this. It means that no calamity. What is calamity? We don't use that word very much anymore. But what does calamity mean? Calamity means disaster. It means catastrophe. It means tragedy. It means crisis. It means tribulation. It means affliction. Nothing happens apart from the official will and decree, and that means no calamity, no blessing, no mercy, no compassion arises apart from the all-encompassing plan and purpose of Almighty God. It means that God is the creator of the universe. It means He is Lord and He is master over everything. It means that his own will and purpose are being directed by him. You know, in Psalms 24, 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. 
Psalms 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Every crack and crevice of this planet, every closet, every shed, every canal bank, every river, every bush, he knows it all. Listen to these words from Isaiah 46, 45 verses 6 and 7. Man, these words this week. <sighs> that men may know. This is God. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness. Get this. Causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. Did you hear that? That's his words. That's what the Bible tells us. Did you know that the Bible flatly contradicts the view of many today that adversity occurs randomly? Adversity does not happen randomly. The Bible flatly contradicts this. In fact, to claim that suffering happens by chance is to deny the all-pervasive biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God. As I can see some of your faces, I can tell you're uncomfortable with that. Did that does that make you squirm in your seats a little bit? It makes me squirm. I've had a chance to wrestle with it. Who is God? Who does he say he is? Do you cringe at the thought that God controls and he directs all things? Including, my friends, the afflictions of your life. What? Why? Why would he do that? If I'm honest... It makes me cringe. And if I'm very honest, it's because I want Santa Claus. I want a God who is going to bless me. I want a God who is going to make things easy for me. I want a God who is going to make my way successful. I don't want a God who's going to use adversity or trials or, or sufferings. In truth, as some of you know, if you're a member here at Sovereign Grace, when I was driving around looking for my son who had run away, I didn't want God to test me with this. I didn't want this. Lord, is there another way that you can teach me that you're great and that you're real? Can you teach me through blessing? Please don't teach me through adversity and suffering. I want to flee at the first sign of trouble, which is suffering. Listen to this quote that I found from C.H. Spurgeon. It's so true. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almary to dispense of his alms and bestow his boundaries. They will allow him to sustain the earth and to bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his rightful place, his creatures then gnash their teeth and we proclaim an enthroned God, we as pastors proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as his will and his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that men turn a deaf ear to preachers or the word of God 
For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. And my friends, if you are here this morning, I want to push you when it comes to the area of suffering to first look at who God is. Who does he say that he is? What is he like? So if he is sovereign, that means nothing happens. And boy, that creates a whole lot more questions. But that means that nothing is happening that he is unaware of. I love the blessings and gifts, but I don't want suffering. What is suffering, though? What are these bends in the road that God puts in the path of life that we are to carefully consider? Simply stated, suffering is anything which hurts or irritates. Anything that hurts or irritates. And you see, in the design of God, It is also something that is used to make us think. It's a tool that God uses to get our attention and to accomplish his purposes in our lives in a way that would never occur without trial or irritation. And yet how many times do we see throughout the Bible that God has led men and women lovingly into seasons of suffering? God has used seasons of suffering, the Bible tells us and shows us. He's led his people, chosen people, people he's called and set apart to do various things for him. He has led them into suffering. Moses led into suffering. Imagine leading over a million people in the wilderness for 40 years, not having a fridge to feed all those people settling disputes. He led them for 40 years into the wilderness. Job, Job, you know the story of Job. God has led his own people. He's also led heathens, those that don't follow them, into suffering. I want to read for you these verses in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Just listen to these words. This is God, and he's saying, to the children of Israel, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and yet I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain, it would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I set among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He has afflicted his people with drought and scorching winds and mildew and death by sword. That's what God has done. The scriptures make it clear that the sufferings of the godly as well as the ungodly come from the hand of God. But the question still remains, even though we can now see that adversity happens or occurs, good or evil, apart from God's sovereign hand, why though? Why the suffering? Now, before we rush on to the why, I want to pause for a moment. I don't want to rush past this important truth. God, we're looking at who he is and what it means for suffering. And this is it. My friend, nothing happens in your life without God's direction. Nothing, nothing, nada, zero happens in your life 
without God's direction. Friends, let that sink in. Nothing happens without God's direction. That truth right there gives divine meaning and purpose to everything that you will be walking through. Everything. It can give you comfort in your health, in your bank accounts, in your relationships that are broken down, in your self personally, in the way that you view yourself and your own struggles. Globally, what's happening globally, it helps you, it informs you with your employment, with your education, everything. Now, this isn't the why, but boy, it does bring comfort to know that God is in control. I love this poem that reads, God hath not promised skies ever blue, flower-strewn pathways always for you, God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain, but he hath promised strength from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. So we've established that God teaches us in his word that he is sovereign, but what about his character? Who God is? What is his character? What is he like? Mrs. Glass's son was uh, a senior and his sister was a sophomore when their dad was killed. And I would watch them attend school events, basketball games, um, dances. In fact, Paige was made homecoming princess uh, and all the other girls got to drive around with their dads in the car and be escorted by their fathers. But Paige remained without her dad. And if you were a part of the school community, you felt the loss. There is pain, and there is confusion, and there is hurt when it comes to suffering. You could see it in their eyes, and yet they seem to know and trust and believe that God was somehow involved in this. God somehow was sustaining them and and providing for them and and comforting them. As a school, it hits us hard. And we often questioned again, God, why? 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 But you know, as we go into God's word, we recognize that questioning is nothing new. Questioning of God is not something that's foreign to him. He's not nervous that we ask him questions about who he is and what he does. He actually tells us and reveals to us who he is and what he's like and what his plans and purposes are. You see, I heard a Christian comedian recently say that Mother Teresa was once remembered for saying that God has got a lot of explaining to do. Now, I'm not a big fan of that comment, but I I get the sentiment. I have a whole lot of questions of God. But the wisest man who ever lived also had a lot of questions for God and what he was like and what he was doing, and yet there was no answers from the wisest man who ever walked the earth. If you get a chance this week, I would encourage you, write this down, but if Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 16, to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 16, read through there and notice the things that Solomon asks the Lord. Things like, if God's in control, then why is there wickedness where justice should be found? He questions why man dies, just like the animals Will mankind's end be any different than the animals? He questions why there is oppression and tears on the earth. Has that not been a question that you've asked? He notices that some work very hard and reward, are rewarded for it. And he notices that some work very hard and they go unrewarded. He notices that some are lazy and they are rewarded. He notices some are lazy and they are not rewarded. He asks questions about loneliness, and he finally asks this question about a fleeting popularity that happens with man. You see, to question God is good, but we want to tread carefully because we are actually questioning the character of God. 
You see, interestingly, this wise man states in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7, that it is our first task to fear God. Now, what that means in the Hebrew is that we are to have a reverence. We are to have a respect for a God. And that respect and that reverence and awe in our hearts is supposed to lead us to obedience. So you see, it's okay to ask questions of God. But say you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't know God. You're telling me to ask God questions. I don't actually know God. Well, can I take a moment and explain to you what the Bible says his character is like? I would encourage you to explore what God's word says. But throughout scripture, we are told that God is all-powerful. We sang about it this morning. He's all-powerful. He is ever-present. That means that he is always with us. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign. He's holy. Think about that. He is holy. He's absolute truth. He is righteous. He's gracious, he's just, he's fair, he's loving, he's merciful, he's faithful, and he will never, ever change. You see, when we read Genesis 1 to 3 at the very beginning, we see that there God created earth, and we're told that everything was perfect. Man and woman reflected the image of God. It was perfection, And they were running around in the nude. Like, it was perfection. No flaws, no blemishes. The fruit was perfect. You could taste whatever fruit you wanted. The trees were beautiful. The scenery, I mean, we're going to go out to Balmoral Beach today. I mean, that's beautiful. But imagine that without no blemish. Just absolute perfection. Man and woman were made in, in his image. God is the definition of perfection. He is the plumb line of perfection. He is the litmus test. There is no fault found in him. He is perfect. Nothing needs to be adjusted or changed. He cannot lie. He's the potter. We're the clay. He's the creator. And everything he does, he does well. So we read in Genesis 2 that when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them some guidelines, and Adam and Eve disobeyed. Adam and Eve decided that, nah, not going to do that. And the effects of that decision have affected all of humanity, all of mankind. In fact, I want to explain to you, it has affected every area of relationship in all of humanity. You see, man and woman, as a result of disobeying God, they immediately became alienated from God. What do you mean they became immediately alienated? Before, they're running around in the nutties, not feeling any shame. They're not, they're walking with God in the cool of the evening. They have free relationship with God. But then all of a sudden, they disobeyed and they're hiding in the bushes. And they're starting to, to sew together or weave together something to cover their bits. There was instantaneous alienation from God. They were alienated from one another, from each other. They were covering up from one another. They were alienated from the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out of the perfection. They were no longer able to enjoy that sort of close connection with God and and interaction with God. They were alienated from eternal life. God told them that they would die if they ate of the tree of life. You know what's, not in my notes, but you know what's so incredible? God always always, always, always tells people what is going to happen if they don't obey. Find me a place where throughout Scripture, when he's revealing who he is, he's warned Adam and Eve. He warned um, the children of Israel. He warned the children of Israel over and over and over again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, he warned them. He's warning us. Adam and Eve finally 
were alienated from themselves. You see, that entire image of God is twisted by sin, and so now all of mankind is corrupt in all of its facets and beings. So what all this shows us is that suffering and affliction and human death are actually a result of our disobedience, not a great, perfect, holy God. And to be clear, disobedience to the revealed word of God. And yes, without sin, there would be no suffering. Without sin, there would be no suffering. A holy God, a just God, a faithful God, a loving God would not ignore unholiness. You see, the unloving thing to do would be for him to overlook and ignore man's disobedience. That would actually truthfully be unloving. But God being perfect in character and unable to change who he is, not only acknowledged the unholiness of man and the disobedience and the sin of man, he dealt with it. This is who the God of the Bible is. Please understand, God is not the author or the originator of sin and suffering. Yet, get this, he has predetermined. He has predetermined them because he has predetermined what will ever come about. He has predetermined them because he has predetermined what will ever come about. And so we can say, I can say, we can say with confidence, is sin and suffering do not exist apart from divine control and purpose. God does not sin. He does not condone sin. He does not cause others to sin. He has divine control and purpose with them. Which leads me to my second point, and I'll move quickly through this. What are the biblical purposes of suffering? What does Scripture tell us? It seems that biblically defined, there are purposes for suffering for those who follow Christ. And there is a purpose for suffering for those who don't follow Christ. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, it is important for me to note that suffering happens as a result of actions as well as for no apparent seeming reason. Now, I want you to think about times that you have experienced suffering. Could you say in those times of suffering that you learned anything? My wife and I are so glad, and we would not choose to go through the things that God has allowed us to go through, but God has taught us so many things when it has come to suffering. But look, Please hear me. I am not saying that you should be going and looking for suffering. I'm not saying that it's a party time to be going through suffering. I'm not saying that you gain favor or brownie points when you go through suffering. It ought to be avoided just as Christ avoided it. But notice he avoided it as long as it didn't mean that he was being disobedient to the Father's will. But I want to tell you that there are purposes for our suffering. And here are a few ways that God uses suffering in the life of the follower of Christ. Suffering will lead us to prayer. We see this happen in Scripture to those who have suffered. David prayed for deliverance in the Psalms. You can see that in Psalms 22, verse 11, Psalms 25, Psalms 35, and many others. There's another guy that if you've never read about this guy, I would encourage you to read about him in 2 Kings 19. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah, he... (laughs) He had some bad news delivered to him. And do you know what he did? He instantly went to the Lord. In fact, get this. He was actually told that he was going to die. And do you know what he did? He went and talked to God about it. Hezekiah was a man who went and talked to God. So suffering in the life of a believer, it's, it, it can be used to lead us to prayer. 
Rebecca was a prayer. Jeremiah was a prayer. There's there's myriads of people who were prayers when it was when suffering was um, put on them. One of uh, Hannah wanted a son. She wasn't able to have a son, but she's gone to the temples to pray. Suffering can lead us to communication with God. Another thing that suffering can lead us as Christians to is to the Word. Uh, Paul in Romans 15.4 was encouraging the Roman Christians who were undergoing uh, suffering that they could learn from the things that were written in former days. They were actually written for their good. Why? Because you will find comfort and solace, Romans 5.1-5. Why go to the Word? Because you'll be restored, Psalms 119.50. Because it strengthens and equips us, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. It teaches us, Psalms 119.75. <laughs> Listen to the psalmist. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, so that I might learn thy ways. Suffering leads us to the Word, which then explains who he is and what he's like. Suffering also leads us to long for heaven. You see, when we suffer, we don't look to the world for wisdom. The world tells us or can tell us that suffering has no meaning and no purpose. Hardship is understood as insignificant according to the world, and yet God has a purpose for your very breath. I mean, Paul was writing to the Philippians out of prison, and he's talking about how he has a desire to be with Jesus He wants to be with the Savior, but he recognizes that his purpose here is to remain. So even though he was hard-pressed, he understood that God had a purpose and a plan. (sighs) Suffering leads to us suffering with Christ. Did you know that at the Nicene Council, an important church meeting that was held in the 4th century A.D., that 318 delegates attended that meeting, and fewer than 15, oh, actually fewer than 12, excuse me, had not lost an eye or a hand or did not limp or have a leg lamed by the torture of their Christian faith because of their Christian faith. 318 and less than 12 of them who attended weren't missing an eye, didn't have a limb cut off, weren't lame or limping because of the suffering that they endured for the sake of the gospel going forward. What a special day that is going to be when we gather together with the saints in heaven. We stand on their shoulders and how rich and blessed we are. If you ever want to be encouraged, read unhurriedly through Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Men and women who walked by faith, who suffered and suffered as Christ has. And we, you and I, sit here now, are the wonderful benefactors of that. Quickly, how does God use suffering for those who don't know Christ? What is the purpose of that suffering? What does the Bible tell us? that God does with that suffering. Romans chapter 1 talks about creation and what about those people who can't read and aren't um, privy to all of the wonderful um, iPod casts that we have or all the self-help books that we have or even have the Bible in their language? How are they to even know? And God explains that creation, creation speaks, but it's also written in their hearts. You see, people, God has used affliction in people's lives. In fact, I read many, many testimonies and stories this week of guys like C.S. Lewis and, and guys like John Newton. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, is out on a storm, and hit one of his guys was um, overthrown and drowned and dead, and, 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 and he was not a believer. In fact, his story's kind of like Alex Shaw's, you know. He, was, uh, he tells of his ways, and he was the leader in it. And yet God used suffering to bring John Newton to Christ. What about the thief on the cross? There he is hanging next to Jesus, suffering, and yet he's then brought to, to Jesus in, that very, in those very last moments. It is used as a forewarning. God uses suffering as a forewarning and grabs people's attention. It's a forewarning, perhaps to warn the unbeliever and lead them to repentance. It's also um, a consequence in many ways 
People are punished for their sins, and yet it can be used as a preparation for the kingdom of God to be ushered in into the individual's lives. You know, when my wife and I were not walking with the Lord, we reaped many consequences for our poor decisions. We were saying, no, thank you, God. We don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way, and he allowed us to do it our way, and we did it our way, and it did not work, and the consequences were were horrible. I mean, there was times in our marriage where, you know, (laughs) Mick's saying to me, this ain't good. This isn't what I signed up for. What are you going to do? My, my decisions in leading my family and my home were not good, were not fruitful. I had gone away from and departed from what God was asking me to do. But the consequences, God used those things in my life. And, and I would just encourage you that there are some questions to be asking of yourself if you are going through suffering. There are some questions. Am I responsible for what's going on here? Have, are there thing, have I been lying? Have I been cheating? Have I been stealing? I mean, just ethically, how am I treating people? I mean, there are some questions that you can be asking yourselves about what is going on in my own heart right now. Why am I, uh, why are things going on that just seem crazy? And if you can answer all of those questions, then maybe you might be thinking, yeah, maybe God is sort of doing something. I remember calling Dave Taylor in the hospital when my wife was in there after the miscarriage, and I said, Dave, maybe I've done something wrong. Like, I don't want to see my wife suffering like this. I don't want to, I don't want to, maybe. He's like, Patrick, breathe, buddy. Breathe. What's the truth? Preach the truth to yourself. And so I would encourage you, ask yourself, what is going on around me? Now, if you're sitting here and not a Christian and still confused as to why God would allow suffering, I want to tell you something about this amazing God that I serve. The suffering that you may go through is not unknown to the creator of heaven and earth. He knows the suffering you're going through. He knows the suffering that the believer's going through. He knows it. But here's the thing. There's a purpose and a plan for your suffering. There's a purpose and a reason and a plan for your suffering. Now, you may be saying, what do you mean? I mean, God has a plan and a purpose. And it could be that he's forewarning you. And he could be that he wants you to, he wants to grab your attention and tell you, you know that suffering that you're going through? I've suffered and I've suffered in your place. I want you to think with me for a moment, and it's very sobering to do, but I want you to think about Almighty God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Knowing, man, knowing that one day the Son would have to leave heaven, be born of a virgin, grow up for 33 years on earth to go to Calvary, to suffer. I want you to think about some of the things that could have happened to Jesus while he was here for 33 years. Can you imagine the mockery that he got about his mama? Can you imagine the teasing that he would have got? That man suffered. God sent his son to suffer and die in our place. Remember how I said to you that a holy God cannot overlook the disobedience of sinful men. Remember how I said that he dealt with it? How did he deal with it? He suffered and died in our place. And the Bible tells us in several places that Jesus suffered. The Old Testament writers believed and they predicted that the Messiah who would come would bear great affliction, agony, and grief. They even said that he would appear as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53.3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The Gospels, all of them tell that he was explaining that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. The image of Jesus in the garden. There he was about to be betrayed before he's tried and crucified. 
and he knows all things and he waits for the betrayer to come and kiss him on the cheek. And what does he do? He is we, he's talking, communing to God in that great suffering, suffering so much that he's sweating drops of blood. He'd suffered, and yet despite the suffering, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. I love these words from Jonathan Edwards, and he says, Christ's principal errand in the world was suffering. So agreeably to the errand, he came with such a nature and in such circumstances as most made, it, most made way for his suffering. So his whole life was filled up with suffering. He began to suffer in his infancy, but his suffering increased the more he drew near to the close of his life. Do we suffer alone? No. For we have a great high priest who knows exactly what it is to suffer. If you don't know him, could it be that your suffering is being used to get your attention to consider him? What do you do to know God? You ask him to be your Lord and Savior. You confess, you haven't been my God. I haven't wanted to follow your ways, but I do now. And would you please forgive me for living independently of you? Because he suffered so that we might have hope in our suffering. He suffered so that we would have an assurance that he is with us. He suffered so we can run to one who knows and we can find comfort in him. So how could a good God allow suffering? This is my answer. From what I see biblically, it's still a mystery. It's a mystery that has predetermined purposes and plans for my good and his glory. And these predetermined purposes and plans come from a God who is sovereign and whose character is infallible. And this sovereign God, with impeccable attributes, uses suffering for those who know him and for those who don't, to strengthen, to teach, to correct, and to draw. If you are here suffering this morning, you probably have a whole lot more questions but I would want you to know you're not alone. If you belong to him, he is your Lord and Savior. He hasn't left you. He is all-knowing. He is all-loving. He is merciful, and he is trustworthy. So please don't run away from him. Run to him. Allow him to bring you comfort, whether it's through his word, through worship, through his brothers and through his children, us, the church. If you don't know him, would you hear his invitation to trust him? Hebrews 3, 7 says, do not harden your hearts. So dear friend, if you're here and you haven't made a decision for Jesus, don't harden your heart. If I'm honest... I still don't know why Mr. Glass died. But this I do know. I do know that he predetermined for this to happen. The secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord. But things that have been revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. Please, my friends, when it comes to suffering, would your questions start with getting to know him, who he is, and what he says? Because he loves us. Can I pray?